I want to invite you this morning to uh, turn to Romans 9. We come back to this great, great book and great chapter after a number of weeks. It's a chapter that's taken us deep into deep doctrines, doctrines of God's sovereign election. And so we've taken time to walk very slowly through it because it's helpful and necessary, especially when such doctrines are so misunderstood But the danger is, of course, when you walk so slowly through something that you miss the proverbial forest for the trees. You miss the big picture. So it's helpful for us to remind ourselves really what this entire chapter and section is about and probably uh, framed up nowhere better than in verse 6 of This chapter where Paul asks the question or makes a statement, I should say, it's not as though the word of God has failed for not all who descend from Israel belong to Israel. Paul's writing this chapter, in other words, not primarily as some sort of discourse on the doctrines of election, but he's presenting election to answer two key questions Has God's word concerning Israel's blessing failed? And why then do most Jews not believe? These would have been the burning questions that readers, Jewish readers of Paul's letter would have been asking, especially in light of so much emphasis that Paul has given to the Gentiles and their belief throughout this book. Now our problem is that those issues are so remote to us. Our problem is as you sit here this morning and you listen to uh, that kind of statement or those kinds of questions or read these kinds of books, that those are not the burning questions that are on your mind. You didn't wake up, I'm pretty confident this morning, wondering why aren't all the Jews believing That probably was not the first thing that you were asking. Maybe it's not been uh, the first thing you've asked in a while. You probably aren't wondering why in the world God's word has failed to the Jewish nation. Those aren't the things that are pressing in on your life every day. And so it's tempting for you to read a chapter like this or hear a section like this and just sort of bypass it or 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 glaze over it and get on to what you think are the more relevant topics in your life. These aren't the kind of questions you're asking, but they were the questions that Paul's Jewish readers would have been asking. You have to realize, though, that this is not just an issue of Jews and Gentiles. Or another way to say this, it's not just a racial issue. This isn't about whether or not Jewish people will be in the church or whether or not you know, Gentiles will be in the kingdom or, or any of those things. It's not a racial issue. It is a religious issue. It's not a question of race. It's a question of who God accepts as His people. Who are the people of God? What kind of people does God want for his people? Now, you may not have even had that question, but it is, it is more, uh, if you will, central to the whole issue of what Paul's talking about. 
You might have thought to yourself from time to time, what kind of person is God looking for to be a part of his people? What kind of person is God looking for to bring near to himself? Or maybe you just assumed that you knew the answer already. Maybe you just assumed that God, when he goes to find one for his people, he goes to find someone who has a certain background, someone who comes from perhaps a certain kind of family, certain kind of religious environment, someone with a lot of Bible knowledge, someone raised in a church, someone with some natural inclination towards spiritual things, maybe naturally born preferring those kinds of things, someone who just gravitates to such disciplines as Bible reading and prayer. Maybe you just imagine that when God is looking for people to be his people, those are the kinds of people that he's looking for. Those are the assumptions that people sometimes have or the questions maybe that they sometimes ask. And those are really the kinds of questions that are behind everything Paul's saying in Romans chapter 9. The question or the questions concerning who are the people of God. As I said, it's really the question that the Jews were asking, not so much for racial reasons as for religious reasons. They kind of assumed, they kind of assumed that they were the people of God. They assumed they were the people of God because they had religious privileges. They had been brought up with a certain amount of Bible knowledge, knowledge of the Old Testament. They've been brought up with a strong religious heritage, family heritage. They've been brought up with these religious privileges and they just assumed that the religious privileges therefore indicated that they were the kind of people God was looking for. At least they were the ones that God had His focus on. On the other side, they assumed that all those people who weren't raised in that kind of environment, they assumed that all the people who didn't come up in Jewish society, or we might say it this way, people who didn't come up under the religious system of Judaism, they weren't brought up with the Bible knowledge, they weren't brought up with the family connections and the family heritage, they didn't have all that background, they didn't have all those privileges, they didn't have all that we might say, inclination. They just assumed that those people were not the people of God. They were the people of God and everyone else was not the people of God. And the way they frame that up is they, the Jews, are the people of God and the Gentiles, the non-Jews, are not the people of God. But what Paul has been saying throughout the book of Romans has mixed all of that up for them. Because he has basically diminished the value of all of those privileges. He's mixed up all of their understanding of who the people of God are. Because he's told them that their religious privileges don't matter a bit. He's told them that what really ultimately matters is one thing. And that is faith. Faith in Jesus Christ. Which then... God credits you with righteousness because of that. Faith in Jesus Christ in which you become totally worthy to stand before God. Faith in Jesus Christ by which you become one of God's people. 
even if you never had anything to do with God before. Now, on one hand, this meant that a Jew could not just simply assume that he was part of God's people because he had all of these religious privileges. He needed to be a Jew who had faith, faith like Abraham. On the other hand, it meant that a Gentile who had no background with God, who had no knowledge of the Bible, who had no religious privileges, who had none of those sorts of things, that a Gentile, if he had faith like Abraham, that he could be one of God's people. So it all comes down to the issue of faith. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter what your um, natural disposition is. It doesn't matter what your family heritage is. It doesn't matter what kind of environment you're... Doesn't, none of that matters. You can be a part of the people of God by faith in Christ. Uh, in, in other words, Jews can't just assume it anymore. They can't just assume that they are one of God's people. In fact, God never intended that. He gave special promises to Abraham and to his descendants that he would bless them and make them his own, but he never meant that he would do that with all of Abraham's descendants. He only meant that he would do that with those who have faith like Abraham. And Paul shows that in Romans chapter 9 by showing different pictures of the descendants of Abraham. He, remember, talked about Isaac and Ishmael. One of them was God's child, one of them wasn't. He talked about Jacob and Esau. One of them was God's child. One of them wasn't. They both basically brought up in the same family, taught the same things, brought up with the same sort of privileges, but one of them believed and one of them didn't. And this is the way you see God developing his people throughout the history of the Old Testament. So we can say that God doesn't promise that all Jews would be his people, But he does promise that he'll always have his people among the Jews. There will always be Jews who believe. There will always be, as as Paul calls it, a remnant. And this is, by the way, where he will eventually go in Romans 11, that this is how ultimately God will fulfill all of his promises to the Jews. He'll do it through the remnant. And the reason God will always have people among the Jews is because he sovereignly chooses them. He sovereignly appoints that within the nation of Israel, there will always be believing Jews. None of them deserve it. Every one of them are just as unworthy in their natural-born state, all of those who, even with all of their religious privilege, don't deserve to be God's people any more than another Jew, or for that matter, any more or less than anybody who isn't a Jew. But God chooses to show His mercy to some of them. He chooses to show His mercy to the undeserving. He chooses some of them to be His own. And why he does that, we don't know. Those are mysteries within the mind of God, the processes. He'll have mercy on whomever he has mercy. But we know at least this, that one of the, uh, one of the reasons we might say is to magnify his own glory, to generate his own praise. God is working out this plan within the vast unbelief 
of the Jewish nation to save some within that nation so that he can bring about the magnification of his mercy. By choosing some and not others, particularly among the Jews, he is demonstrating over and over and over again that the criteria for who are the people of God will always be his mercy and our faith. It isn't anything we do. It isn't anything that we have. It isn't anything that we can present before God. All it is is believing in him. And this is the point that's emphasized over and over again. It's emphasized by God's repeated calls within the history of Israel for people to have circumcised hearts, for people to have genuine faith in Him. Spiritual privileges don't make people more worthy, but over and over again, God calls them to deal with their own unworthiness and to come to Him by faith. Now, Paul's presenting this to us in Romans chapter 9, and he does it with all of these Old Testament if you will, stories, or as we near the end of the chapter, he does it with a series of Old Testament passages demonstrating the unbelief of Israel that while God shows his mercy to some, by and large, Israel was an unbelieving nation for most of their existence. And consequently, they have not been the people of God as they might suppose that they were. So, Their current unbelief in Paul's own day is nothing new. The Jews who are asking, as Paul's writing this letter, what about the Jews? What about the promises? Why aren't all of them believing? It's nothing new. This is exactly the way it has always been. That's the point that Paul is aiming to show us as we come to the end of the chapter today, looking specifically at verses 24 through 29 of Romans, 29, uh, of Romans 9, all these verses that are quoting from the Old Testament and showing who the people of God are and who they're not. Now really, to, to understand what Paul has to say here, we have to back up to verse 22, which we, we've already mentioned in the past, but really this is the the beginning of a a long sentence here. This is his main assertion that we've got to grasp if we're going to understand what he says in verses 24 and following. He says this, listen as as he writes this, as he contrasts the patience of God with the vast unbelief of Israel versus the mercy of God on the few who believe. And he even begins along the way to mention Gentiles in the discussion for the first time in Romans chapter 9 who will receive similar mercy to the mercy that God has for the remnant of Israel. This is what he says in verse 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory? Even us, whom he has called, Not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed, he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I'll call my people. And her who was not beloved, I'll call beloved. 
And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel, who pursued the law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as it were, based on works. They've stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it's written, behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Here you can hear Paul's emphasis very clearly. There are a massive number of people that he just simply calls vessels of wrath that God is patiently enduring. He's putting up with them. Why is he doing it? So that he can make known the riches of his glory on vessels of mercy. And Paul proceeds to illustrate this with a couple of quotations from the Old Testament about how God has done this very thing with Israel. He has endured with much patience rebellious Israel who was destined for wrath because he intended to show his glory to vessels of mercy. Actually, Paul's already introduced this theme, interestingly, back in verse 17 when he talked about Pharaoh, who God had raised up and hardened and prepared for just such a moment in order to demonstrate his mercy on Israel. He raised up and he endured the, the callous and rebellious and blasphemous attitudes of Pharaoh. He did all of that, putting up with with. Uh, his insolence in order to further magnify his own mercy on Israel. And now, Paul talks about vessels of wrath that God has prepared for destruction, but surprisingly, he illustrates it not with other instances of pagan nations, not with other stories of pharaohs, but whenever he talks about vessels of wrath, What does he talk about? He talks about rebellious Israel. And all of this begins with quotes from the book of Hosea. Two quotes, in fact, out of the book of Hosea that introduce the first of two points that Paul's making about Israel when it comes really to the question of who are the people of God. And the first point is this. Israel's spiritual privilege left them no better than the Gentiles. Israel's spiritual privileges left them no better than the Gentiles. You could generalize that principle for us and say no one's spiritual privileges leave them any better than anyone else. No one's spiritual privileges leave them any better than anyone else. Paul's point here in quoting from Hosea is to reiterate that. That God's 
promise to Israel to be his people didn't apply to all of Israel, but only to those vessels of mercy that he had prepared for glory. Hosea was a prophet from the mid-8th century that was prophesying in the lead-up to Israel's uh, uh, captivity to Assyria. And as a message of warning through the prophet, God had called him to some unique practices to go and demonstrate in his role as a husband and as a father what God's love looks like. Hosea was to give the greatest message of his life, we might say, through his living, through the way he simply loved a woman and loved his children. He was to go and marry a wife of prostitution. And we don't know, the text doesn't tell us whether she was already in prostitution or if she would eventually turn to prostitution, but regardless, he was to demonstrate unceasing love to her even through all of her unfaithfulness, and she would give birth to children who were to be given names of rejection. And yet he was to love his children still the same. And you can read all this for yourself over in Hosea chapter 1, in verse 2, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go take for yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblium, and she conceived and bore him a son. Here Hosea is called to marry this woman. He is to love her in spite of her prostitution. And so he goes and he marries this woman, Gomer, and they have a child together. And the Lord commands Hosea to name his child. Verse 4, the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel. For in just a little while, I'll punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I'll put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel, and on that day, I'll break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. So he's to name his son Jezreel, which basically means God scatters, and he does this as a... Uh, As an indication of God's judgment, he was going to judge Israel and he was going to scatter them among the nation, particularly the ten tribes of the northern kingdom. He was going to scatter them throughout the nations beginning with Assyria. He was going to cast them off into Assyria. And this would be the beginning of a a sustained and long-term scattering of Israel outside of their promised land. Really, from that time up until today, it has always been the state of Israel. Prior to this, they existed exclusively within the land of Israel. But beginning with this, they were scattered to Assyria and then to Babylon and then from Babylon uh, and all the other nations, eventually throughout the Persian, the Roman Empire's They would be scattered and never completely gathered back to their own land. He has another child, a daughter, and her name is Lo Ruhama, which means no mercy. Her name was No Mercy. 
This is what you read in, in verse 6. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, call her name No Mercy, for I will have no more mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. Probably not number one on the book of baby names that year. I wouldn't recommend it. Kind of put it up there with Arfaxid as biblical names you shouldn't consider, right, for your kid. This was a name of rejection, a name of scorn. Again, an indication of what God was going to do in judgment to the nation of Israel. Gomer gives birth to a third child. It says in verse 8, when she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name Lo-Ami, not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. That would have been a shock to Israel. That would have been a shock to them, an offense, because they just assumed that they were God's people. No one had ever told them otherwise. In fact, they felt like they had it on promise from God that they were, by virtue of their birth, by virtue of their privileges, by virtue of their heritage, they were God's people. And now this, like so many things that came to them in the latter prophets are destroying the foundations of their assumptions. But really all Hosea is doing like so many of the latter prophets, is simply expounding for them, unfolding for them the truths that were already given to them in their original scripture, which was the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. These were the core documents, the founding documents, we might say, of Israel. They were the books that God gave to Moses when he constituted his covenant with them. They were the books that explained Israel's early history. They expounded um, so that, or I should say, they were expounded so that Israel's subsequent history could be understood. And Hosea, even in giving these names to his children was really just expounding for Israel what they should have already understood from the Pentateuch. His message, and particularly the prophetic names of his children, are a direct response to the promises, or a direct, I should say, exposition of the promises and the warnings that have been given in the Pentateuch, especially the message about being God's people and not being God's people. This is language that comes straight out of the Pentateuch. You might recognize it at least in passing from the book of Exodus, where God says repeatedly, almost every chapter in the first 10 chapters, let my people go. Let my people go. Do you know God had never said that about any other nation before that point? He had never said of any nation, they are my people. But here he claims that they are his people. And 
Pharaoh's to let them go because they are his people. Very, very unique language. And more specifically, in Leviticus 26, he establishes this language. In fact, let me turn back there and read that for you. Leviticus 26. If you have your Bibles, you might want to turn there to see where all of this arises from, not only for Hosea, but eventually even for Paul. Leviticus 26, verse 3 This is what God says. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I'll give you the rains in their seasons and the land shall yield its increase and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last to the time of the grape harvest and the grape harvest shall last to the time for sowing. And you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. I'll give you peace in the land and you shall lie down and none shall make you afraid. And I will remove harmful beasts from your land and the sword shall not go through your land. You shall chase your enemies and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred and a hundred of you shall chase ten thousand and your enemies will fall before you by the sword. I'll turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply you and confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat the old store long kept and you shall clear out the old to make way for the new. And I'll make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. This is the first time God says this to Israel. I will be your God and you shall be my people. He says it because he's going to dwell among them. He's going to establish his presence in a special way among them. They're going to be his people in a unique way. Of course, God knew that all of these conditions he had laid out for this, Israel's faithfulness, Israel's obedience, He knew they couldn't keep it, so he comes with a warning in verse 14. But if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules, so that you will not do all my my commandments but break my covenant, then I'll do this to you. I'll visit you with panic, with wasting disease, with fever that consumes the eyes and makes the heart ache. You'll sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. I'll set my face against you, and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you, and you shall flee from when none pursues you. And if in spite of this you'll not listen to me, then I'll discipline you again sevenfold for your sins. And I'll break the pride of your power, and I'll make your, he- make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze." Your strength shall be spent in vain and your land shall not yield its increase and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. Then, if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I'll continue striking you sevenfold for your sins. I'll let loose the wild beast against you which shall bereave you of your children and destroy your livestock and make you few in number so that your roads shall be deserted. And if by this discipline you're not turned to me but walk contrary to me, then I'll also walk contrary to you, and I myself will strike you sevenfold for your sins. 
Down in verse 27, he says, But if in spite of this you'll not listen to me, but walk contrary to me, then I'll walk contrary to you in fury. And I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. Verse 33, And I'll scatter you among the nations, and I'll unsheathe the sword among you, and your land shall be a desolation, and your cities laid waste. Go down to verse 40. But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers and their treachery that they've committed against me and also walk in walking contrary to me so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies, if then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, then I'll remember my covenant with Jacob and I'll remember my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham. And I will remember the land. But the land shall be abandoned by them and enjoy its Sabbaths while it lies desolate without them. And they shall make amends for their iniquity because they spurned my rules and their soul has abhorred my statutes. Yet for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not spurn them, neither will I abhor them so as to destroy them utterly and break my covenant with them. For I am the Lord their God. But I will be for their, excuse me, but I will for their sake remember the covenant with their forefathers whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations that I might be their Lord. Excuse me, I might be their God. I am the Lord. So, when you read all that, when you understand all that, and then you get to Hosea, and God is beginning to say, I'm going to scatter you. I'm going to be Jezreel. And, and you're no longer going to be my people. These aren't just random words. These aren't just random names now. This is almost like a complete reversal of the Exodus. Where God took them out of a pagan nation and God called them his people. Now it's almost as if he's treating them like that never happened. He's, he's dispersing them out into the nation, sending them back out into slavery and saying that they're not his people. Or another way of saying this is God is going to treat them just like he does every other nation. Maybe even worse than every other nation. They wouldn't be treated as God's people. They wouldn't be treated with mercy. They would would receive no mercy. They would receive no special relationship. They would no longer be treated, as Paul says, beloved. In spite of the fact that they had all these incredible privileges, they had the law, they had the commandments, they had the temple, they had the priesthood, they had the sacrifices, they had the holy place, they had God's presence among them. None of that made any difference. They were still an unfaithful people. Like a wife of prostitution. That's who they were. And so God was going to abandon His commitment to them. He was going to treat them as if they weren't His people at all. Until they reached a point where they humbled themselves in their heart. And with uncircumcised heart, they trusted in Him with faith. Now, why is Paul quoting all this? He doesn't obviously take us all the way back to Leviticus. He gives us just the scratch of the surface of that, but enough so that we can understand the point. 
Why is he saying all this? Just to demonstrate that things were no different in his day. Israel was unbelieving in his day, but they've always been unbelieving. They were always unbelieving in the Old Testament. So it's not a shocker if when their Messiah shows up, they're still unbelieving. Because they had been already cast off by God as not his people. As those who were not beloved. As those who were cast aside like every other nation. And it didn't matter what their background was. It didn't matter what their privileges were. It didn't matter what kind of family heritage they had. They were the same as everyone else. They came from the same standpoint. They were not God's people. But God's in the business of calling people who are not his people and making them his people. That's Paul's point. His whole point is, what if God, desiring to make his power and his glory known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared or fitted for destruction so that he could show his glory to vessels of mercy. And the point in all of that is that every one of us were born into that situation, vessels of wrath fitted for destruction, but God is enduring with much patience so many who are rejecting Christ so that he can show his mercy to the select few who do. And that was taking place even within Israel. See, see, this is why we're thankful that Leviticus 26, at least the first half, is not the end of the story. We're thankful that, that Hosea 1 through 9 is not the end of the story because Paul even goes on here in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, excuse me, Romans chapter 9. Paul even goes on to quote from Hosea, yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured and numbered. And the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. Or, or even at the end of Hosea 2.23, I will sow her for myself in the land. I will have mercy on no mercy. And I'll say to not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. See, this is what God was doing within Israel. Even in their religious environment, they were maybe masking their rebellion against God by all of their religious activity, but they were just as much estranged from God as anyone else. But it was God's mercy in choosing out from among the vast majority of them those select few who he would give circumcised hearts to and would experience his mercy. Now you might be here and you might be looking around today and thinking, man, all these religious people, I don't know, you know, I don't know if I belong here. I'm not sure this is the environment for me. I'm not sure where all this stuff comes from. Their, their interest in these songs and this Bible and preaching and all these things. Well, 
Don't be deceived as if to think that we were all somehow born the people of God. None of us were. Doesn't matter if we were born in Christian homes uh, or if we were born in non-Christian homes. Every one of us were born in the same condition. We were not God's people until God called us. And when he called us, his demand was one thing. Faith, faith in Jesus Christ. And when you express that faith in Christ, you go from being not God's people to being God's people. You go from being one who doesn't have mercy to one who has mercy. You go from one who is a vessel of wrath prepared for destruction to one who's a vessel of mercy prepared for glory. Now, all this sort of leads naturally to the second point. Paul's quotes from a second prophet there in Romans 9, which is simply this. God's special mercy on a remnant keeps Israel from utter destruction. The utter destruction they deserved, really. If God's enduring with wrath those vessels prepared for destruction, if he's doing that, the reason he was doing that within Israel is because he has plans of mercy for some. He endured all of this because in the future he wants to show his mercy. And so Paul says in verse 27, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. He's saying, look, it doesn't matter how many Israelites there are, they're not my people. Unless they are a part of that remnant who has a circumcised heart and expresses faith in me, it doesn't matter if they're as many as the sands of the sea, they're not my people. My people are those who don't have necessarily all the religious privileges or whatever. My people are simply those who have faith. So as we said earlier, not all of Israel would believe, that wasn't God's promise that every Jew born throughout all of time would be his people, but by God's sovereign hand, because of his electing grace, there would be within Israel always someone who did believe. This is the doctrine of sometimes what we call the remnant. Despite God's covenant with Abraham and his descendants, the Bible's always made it clear the majority of Jews would be unbelieving Jews. And only a remnant would be saved. And in fact, like every other nation, they'd receive the destruction the majority of Jews would that they deserve. Just like every other nation, and even worse than that, like Sodom and Gomorrah, as Paul says in verse 29, and he quotes again, as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us a seed, an offspring, we would be like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. See, all of this explains for Paul the state of Israel in his own day. All of this explains for the Jews why so many of them weren't believing And while Paul isn't directly applying it to our situation, it explains our situation. 
why there are so few who gather in places like this on a Sunday morning, why there are so many who live for the world, why there are so many who reject the gospel and reject Christ. All of this explains for us exactly why that is. It's because the vast majority of people, even outside of Israel, are, for whatever reason, rejecting the Messiah, but God is selecting His few among the Jews and even among the Gentiles in order to grant them mercy, that they might respond in faith and repentance. Nothing new. And understood within the context of the Old Testament, this is exactly what God had always said about Israel. Their spiritual privileges don't mean anything. They don't make them the people of God. In fact, God had utterly declared that for most of them, they're not His people. They would not receive mercy. But for those who approach God by faith, no matter what their background, He receives them. This is what Paul will say over in, in chapter 10, eventually. Whenever he gets down in verse 11, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. See, this isn't just the story of Israel. This is a story for you. If you're here today and you're not a Jew and these aren't the questions you're asking, let me tell you the question you ought to be asking. Am I one of God's people? And if I'm not, how can I be? The answer is clear from the pages of Scripture. You can be one of God's people, not by getting all of these religious deeds together, not by getting your act together and bringing yourself, cleaning yourself up, making yourself presentable to God. God will clean you up. But the thing that makes you one of God's people is this. You believe. Confess your sins, the iniquities of your heart how you've spurned God and acted adulterously against Him. And you do that, you confess your sins, you approach Him in faith. And God says to you, though you were not my people, now you're my sons and my daughters. It's a glorious message of the gospel. It's a glorious message of the Old Testament. It's a glorious message of faith. It's a message that God delivers to you this morning. We're going to stand together and be dismissed in a word of prayer and a song. I want to challenge you. If you're here today and you're not one of God's people and you want to be, come see me. I'd love to share with you from the Scripture exactly how God can work to bring that about through Jesus Christ. Let's uh, bow together in a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful for the time in the Word this morning. We're thankful for, for the the grace and the mercy revealed, not only here in the pages of Romans, but throughout the entirety of your scripture, a mercy shown to an undeserving people over and over again, a mercy that we need. Lord, and we pray that you would show it by the power of your grace, the working of your mind to the glory of your name. 
Would you show mercy to those who had no mercy? Would you call them your people who have not been your people? And would you magnify your name by it? We pray in Christ's name. Amen.